Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Alhamdulillah So, alhamdulillah, I am now in Birmingham in Sheikh Aswar Rashid's house, uh, who has read my book. He picked up a copy last year and has read it through. So, we decided to sit down and uh, have a discussion about it and discuss the more salient points uh, therein. Firstly, assalamu alaikum warahmatullah. Ahlan wa sahlan to our brother Mahdi Luck. And yes, your book, uh, I studied the entire book, read the book cover to cover. And what I found interesting was what you mentioned regarding Islam surviving in Hmm. what you term, well, the term Anglosphere is an old term. I've heard um, intellectuals use that term also, but you've popularized this more amongst Muslim circles, the yeah. term Anglosphere. Um, what you mentioned regarding Islam surviving in the West, that you see no future for okay. Muslims in the West. So that was more or less the conclusion of the entire book. Yeah. So I'll have to, I'll have to expand on that. Okay. Uh, actually, first of all, regarding the term Anglosphere, uh, I got that term from Daniel Hannon, who's the he's a conservative MEP. I believe he's one who actually coined the term, but he was using it back in 2014, I think it was. He wrote a book called How We Invented Freedom, and he was talking about Anglosphere, because he called this term Anglosphere because he talked about how the English went out and populated these areas, what is now Canada, the United States, Australia, New Australia, Zealand. New Zealand. So those five countries, those are the English-speaking countries. And then he would argue further and say that uh, like what we call globalization is really anglobalization, because... We see people around the world wearing suits and ties. The suit and ties were originally an English thing. People are using English as the medium of, uh, like, their lingua franca and day-to-day activities. So it's more of an anglicizing of the world, as opposed to like a Europeanizing or a Westernizing of the world. That's the first thing. Now, as for um, the future of Islam in the West, I'm basing a lot of that because what, what we have in the book for readers who have, have come across that chapter is what I call these. You know, these four abominations, um, which were starting with fiqh of minorities, fiqh minorities in 2001. So when uh, Imam Muhammad al Bulti made that pronouncement, the first one, there's two ones, there's 2001, 2003. The first one he made in 2001, and this was after organizations based in Europe like... Uh, European Fiqh Council. Yeah, the European Fatwa Council. Yeah. Which, again, that's something else that Imam al Bulti has commented on, because not everyone on that panel is actually mufti. So you can't call it a fatwa council, because if you're going to call something a fatwa council or a fiqhi council, everyone on that panel should be a mufti or a faqih. Uh, the same way if you have a medical council, everyone should be a doctor, right? Um, so he said at that time that if... He said, we, yeah, he said that if uh, prior to this time we thought that Islam was the, was the fastest growing religion in the West, that it was just spreading like fire, everyone was embracing it, but then we realize this fiqh of minorities is rearing its head. That means that Islam is now being subsumed into the dominant Western culture, and it's losing its identity. It's just going to be dissolved. And he said that if we if we allow this to happen, you're going to get different Islams, local Islams. You'll have like a British Islam, an American Islam, a Canadian Islam, a French Islam, whatever it is, and they'll be totally unrecognizable uh, as, or they'll be totally, I should say distinguished from these Muslim, the Islam you find in the Muslim heartlands. So 
So he was making this pronouncement back in 2001. And, he's, and the other thing he, he pointed out is he quoted uh, Surah Nisa in 97, where Allah talks about Hijra. It's not the, Allah's earth vast enough so they make Hijra in it. So he said, if you ever have a problem implementing your faith in what is Dar al-Kufr, like a dominant, uh, a land that is dominated by the unbelievers, then you leave. That's the solution. You don't change the laws to fit where you are. Uh, with regard to minority fiqh, it was introduced uh, not only by the European Fatwa Council, but mm. other intellectuals as well in the West. Yeah. But I would say it's not picked up in the in the UK as quick as mm. it has picked up in other countries like the US. Yeah, may, maybe not. Maybe not in name, but you 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 see this sort of. Trend. This sort of trend, right? Where, where we're now getting the point of, say, women leading prayers, then we get, you know, uh, homosexual marriages. Parmina Wadud came early yeah. uh, 2004 or around 2005. She yeah. came to the yeah. UK in Oxford yeah. and she led mm. a, a few dozen men in prayer. And there was some imam in Oxford, based in Oxford, who mm. actually went to South Africa and opened a, a masjid. Yeah. Cape Town, yeah, so open to homosexuals and yeah, well, people who pronounce homosexuality as being permitted in yeah, Islam. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, all masajid are open to everyone. Yeah, but saying that homosexuality is permitted in Islam is is disbelief, kufr. Mm -hmm. So there are some people who are now pronouncing that as permitted, but that wouldn't fall into the parameters of minority fiqh as outlaid by uh, yeah, no, no, uh, no, Sheikh no, Abdullah bin Bayah no, 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 not, no, not explicitly, but what I'm, what I'm getting at is once you start that sort of principle where you say, okay, we're in the West and there are different circumstances and therefore we have to create different rules and different rulings, that opens the door for other stuff to come along later. So you can start off uh, with which the things that they did, for example, they started off with the whole thing about mortgages, right, saying it was perfectly halal to get a mortgage because um, uh, you are because you're in the UK or the US. You're now in Dar al Harb, right? They totally abuse like a Hanafi method. لا ربا بين الحرب ومسلم لا ربا بين حربي ومسلم في دار الحرب. Yeah. At the end of every باب uh, riba mm. in the Hanafi fiqh works, mm. you'll find that is the last sentence. Mm. So you check شرح البقايا, you check mm. uh, الاختيار, you check all these works. They have that. And Al-Imam Abu Hanifa, rahimullah, he based that ruling on a Mursal Hadith. Mm. So the Shafi'is, mm. when they respond to this, they respond by saying the Hadith is Mursal. Yes, and it's cut off, yeah. But the, the meaning of the, the ruling is that a Muslim mm. is allowed to benefit from the disbeliever. Mm. So in the Hashi of Ibn Abdeen, mm. he mentions that if the Muslim takes a a dinar and gives away two dinars mm. so he's giving away more and taking less mm. some people are under the impression and I think uh, Saraqsi mentions this in Al-Mabsut mm. also that this means the Muslim can give mm. riba mm. but what they are referring to there is that in the old days they had inferior dinars mm. and dinars which were pure gold Mm -hmm. So the Muslim is taking a pure gold dinar 
and giving away inferior quality yes. dinars. Okay. So he's benefiting from the transaction. Mm. So some of them attempted to say the riba transactions that occur now in the in the West mm. with mortgages would fall under this ruling. So basing that on the Darul Harb mm. uh, basis. But additional to that, some of them said it's permitted out of darura because mm. of the legal maxim of darurat yeah, to, to be a mahfurat. So those are two different things. Yeah. Meaning if the darura necessity is such that a person if he does not take out a a mortgage, he will live on the roads yeah. or his family will be moved to a a place where they will be harmed, then that person is permitted in that circumstance to carry mm. out a riba based transaction. But if you base the ruling on on saying that there's no riba between a Muslim and a Harbi in Darul Harb, then that would permit all types of riba transactions yeah. without any parameters, yeah. without looking at particular circumstances. But the reality is that ruling is referring to when the Muslim benefits mm. in the transaction with the non-Muslim. Yeah not when the Muslim is harmed. Mm -hmm. So then some of them attempt to reinterpret that by saying if you rent for a long time, yeah. in the long run, mm. you will benefit only if you buy the profit, uh, property, not mm. if you rent the property. Mm. But how this relates to minority fiqh, what is called fiqh which is a new term as well, the, yeah, the term course, is yeah. new is in reality what fiqhul should be renamed mm. is uh, fiqhul dururat mm. yeah. and what's the difference between looking at the darurat necessities and hawaij yeah. essentials of yeah, but, but this is what Imam Abulti made in his statement the point he made I mean well actually just go back to one of the previous point again about darul harb is that like the UK or Europe, and it's not Dar al Harb, it's Al Kufr, it's not Dar al Harb because Muslims are not being persecuted here. We're not in a war zone here. But even that, when they use the term Dar al Harb in uh, the fiqh works, mm. they use the term Dar al Harb mm. as a broad term. Uh, within Dar al Harb, even though the word Harb is used, mm. uh, it's used because uh, nations could go potentially go to war. Mm. but. All, all of Darul Kufr would mm. fall under the rubric of Darul. I think we see it differently in the Shafi method. No, no, they no, no, use no. the term loosely. But we would say we, we would say Darul Harb, Darul Kufr is the broader aspect. That's the, where the unbelievers rule, and Darul Harb is that part of Darul Kufr where Muslims are being oppressed and persecuted. What they uh, in, the, in, the, in the Hanafi fiqh works, what they mean when they say the term Darul Harb is any land which is governed by disbelievers, mm. governed, yeah, uh, and that's it. Yeah. yeah. Meaning, but but they use the term Darul Harb. It does not entail that Muslims are entering. Oh, okay. uh, so they'll say a Mustamin yeah. can enter. Uh, Mustamin is a non-believer who takes security in yeah. Darul Islam. Yeah. So uh, in today's day and age, that would be taking visas. Yeah. So if someone enters seeking asylum, uh, yeah, things, yeah. Th they will be termed as Mustamin. So إِذَا دَخَلَ الْمُسْتَأْمِنُ فِي دَارِ الْإِسْلَامِ Mm. Meaning the one who seeks security enters yeah. Darul Islam. Meaning in modern jargon, that would be a, a non-Muslim who lives in a non-Muslim country mm. enters a Muslim country with a visa. Mm. So they mention these type of fiqh rules, yeah, yeah. but the term Darul Harbi is used or Harbi, mm. but it doesn't mean that 
the Harbi is uh, taking up arms against the Muslims. Okay, yeah. So this is a misreading some people yeah. have when they read those fiqh works. Uh -huh. So they may use the term Harbi okay. or the term Darul Harb, but what is not entailed is war. Yeah. Not at all times. Sometimes Al-Imam Shaybani in earlier fiqh works will mention a, a scenario during actual warfare. Okay. But generally speaking, it's not in terms of warfare, it's in terms of classifying the world into Darul Harb and Darul Islam. Okay. But Darul Harb, again, is a broad term, okay. which some scholars today would use the term Darul Kufar. Yeah, because I. Or Darul Amn. Yeah, because I, 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 I put that piece together in my blog where you have. It's by my wife, Haley, and Imam Muhammad and they put it this way where Darul Kufar is the broader term, and Darul Harb is that subset within Darul Kufar. Where Muslims are being persecuted, or there's been some scholars um, use the term Darul Am, yeah, an uh, abode of security. Yeah, some use the term Darul Kufr, but in the Hanafi works, when you find Darul Harb, mm. it's a broad term which mm. all these categories fall into because there is potential of war. Yeah, so basically, the European Fatwa Council is not even not even consulting the Hanafi thick books to see what they actually mean by these terms. I'm not too familiar with the Fatwa Council, but what I do know is that fiqh rulings don't change from one country to another, yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. except with exceptional rulings, which I mentioned, for instance, regarding Bughat, rebels, yeah. or rulings pertaining to Darul Harb, mm. which I mentioned in the Hanafi works, mm. like inheritance laws, mm -hmm. if a person lives in Darul Harb, if a person lives in yeah. Darul Islam and non-Muslims, certain laws applying to them. Mm -hmm. But generally speaking, for a Muslim, if he travels from Egypt to France, the mm -hmm. rulings are the same. The only rulings that may change are, is what we would term darurat yeah. or hawaij. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, Sheikh Abdullah bin Dayya, his uh, work, he has a work on in the other room. Yeah. And, uh, that work would be really a work of darurat, meaning the qawaid fiqhiyah that he yeah. employs or the usul, the usul al-fiqh. And this is also something else uh, regarding calls by some people mm. to rewrite usul al-fiqh. Yeah. You must have heard about people calling yeah, yeah, for... Yeah, yeah, writing usul, yeah, because Imam Abouti have debates with people about this. Because what, what he goes into in, in, uh, in, his, in his statement, his pronouncement against fiqh minorities, he does say that this, or this distinction between... It's, it's, it's one thing to have, say, fatawa for dororat, right? So if someone, someone's in a situation in a country like this where they, they need to survive for whatever reason it is, something, something like you said, dororas come up and they seek a fatwa, that's one thing. But then to, to write a whole new fiqh just because you're living here, that's a, that's a whole different ball game. That's where we're taking things too far. But the, these calls for rewriting usul al-fiqh, yeah. um, that's similar to saying the rules of nahr, yeah, yeah. grammar should be rewritten. Yeah. Meaning, you're changing everything. Uh, istiqra. Yeah. How uh, how would we translate istiqra? Uh, like through investigation. Investigation. Yeah. Yeah. Now. Istiqra for viewers, give a simple example of istiqra. I mean, istiqra, I mean, most common example, common example we have in Shafi fiqh is like where Imam Shafi himself worked out uh, the length, the lengths for menstruation yeah, and so forth. Even knock doors of uh, yeah, and talked to and asked women, right? So, 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 so the, the Shafi books will say like, uh, 
Imam uh, Ibn Qasim al-Ghazi will say in his shard on the Matan Qadi Abu Shija, he'll say that what well, the lead is istiqra. Right? The, 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 so uh, uh, an example of istiqra would be um, you go to a place and you go around asking everyone mm. a particular thing yeah. and what, whatever the overwhelming majority answers with, yeah. you would give a judgment. Yeah. So Nahu grammar, mm. the rules of grammar are such that the grammarians they explored all the different rules of grammar and they picked them up yeah. and wrote down the works of Nahu until they exhausted the subject. Yeah. Yes? Yeah. So once they exhausted the subject, later generations cannot come along and, and change, say yeah. there are new rules to grammar or we are going to uh, place a new paradigm to all of grammar yeah. and rephrase grammar in new books. Yeah, that's impossible. That would be impossible. So usul al-fiqh, what is usul al-fiqh? It's the same principles. Usul al-fiqh is the rules that apply to... How we, how we derive rules from texts. Because it's, it's, another room for usul al-fiqh is al tafsir al-nusuls. Like, like how, how do we understand the, the text, the Quran, and the Sunnah, and how do we derive rulings from them? So someone cannot come along now... And rewrite that. ...and say, we're going to rewrite all of the methods employed mm. by jurists yeah. in... Uh, extracting legal rulings. Yeah. So these calls now for rewriting usul al-fiqh or not even calls for rewriting usul al-fiqh, you also have people who give rulings on their own assumptions. Yeah. You do know this is... Oh, I, 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 I mean, pe- people do things where they'll do ishtihad where there already is a clear text, right? So I've seen people out here in, in Europe um, I mean, so someone wrote a book, some, some scholar based here, I don't want to mention names, but he wrote a book uh, called Islam Ahda Zawjain, right? Trying to argue that if, if let's, let's say if a woman who's not Muslim becomes Muslim and she's still married to a man who's not Muslim, she doesn't have to leave him because that would be a hardship, that would be a burden on her. But that, con- but that contravenes a clear text in the Quran, that says, that uh, a disbelieving man cannot be with a believing woman. So don't you think this is similar to, or not very similar, There's, there is a distinction between the reformists, uh, Muhammad Abdu and Rashid Rida and mm. all that group of people. The difference between them and the people who are calling for ijtihad now is jahl, meaning those shiukh of Lazar at that time, yeah. irrelevant to our disagreements with them, they were not juhal, they were yeah. not ignorant, yeah. they went through the traditional classical learning and and then they came out they were influenced by uh, the British colonialists at that time and they came out with calls for reform and whatnot and they were refuted yeah. by Imam Yusuf al-Nabahani and others oh, yeah. but now you have the likes of this woman uh, Manji yeah. from Canada you said Manji yeah, yeah yeah even she performs ijtihad yeah so you may this Call for ijtihad by the sheikh that you mentioned. Yeah, I don't know who he is, but he may be learned in a yeah, he's, 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 yeah. I mean, in he, a certain he, regard. Yeah, he definitely learned to. But then yeah. they've opened the door up for uh, Irshad Manji. Yeah, and then you have others as well. Yeah, who don't even know Arabic or anything like that. Because again, what, the door we're opening. What happens at that point? Once you open that door, you're basically opening the floodgates. That means if everyone can do their own ijtihad. Yeah, but if everyone can do their own ijtihad, then everyone's going to have their own religion. So Amin Abu Dud, she led men in prayer, yeah. and there's certain people who accept that ijtihad, 
what they call ijtihad, because ijtihad is only done in the absence of a text. In the absence of text. Text or meaning. Hadith. Yeah. So we'll say, if the Quran is explicit yeah. regarding something, mm. or the hadith is explicit, then we have um, space for ijtihad. Yeah. So these people are performing ijtihad in. Yeah. Um, those things where there's clear text and there's, clear a, text. There's, there's a jama'ah as well. So permitting homosexuality, allowing women to lead prayers. One answer to you, hijab is not fard. Yeah, these kind of things. And then the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa foretold that toward the end of time women will pray in hayd. Yeah. People will give that fatwa. Yeah. Women will pray menstruating, yeah. Yeah, while menstruating they will pray. And there will be groups of people that will say there's only three prayers and not five prayers. Okay. And this is one of the sh- in Mustadrak of Imam Al Hakim. This is one of the Ashratu Sa'a. So, Fiqhul Qaliyat was one of those things that you tackled in the book. Yeah. But with Fiqhul Qaliyat, of course, a minority fiqh, this uh, would fall into what we would call Fiqhul Dururat. Yeah. But others have relabeled. Yeah. A fiqh with kaliyat, but it's like you're, set, you're setting up a separate fiqh, and then that fiqh creates... It, what, it, what it leads to eventually is where, you know, Muslims from these, these countries like America or Canada, they will become unrecognizable. Like, they're not... They, they, they will look so different and appear to be so different from Muslims in the Muslim heartlands. And I used to see that when just living in Morocco. Like, living in Morocco, we used to have uh, Americans coming over because uh, where, I, where I was teaching English and, I, and I'm studying Arabic as well you know, uh, classes, the university class from the United States would come over regularly and then be summer courses or summer groups rather uh, they would come over and the Moroccans would just look at them like they're just weird just think just, uh, like what's with, what's with these people like, they, they, like we can't tell like who's a Muslim who's not we look at the group so you have uh, two extremes you have the pseudo-Salafi movement mm. that calls for people moving away from the four schools yeah. and going into a uh, directly accessing the Quran, the Sunnah for legal rulings. Yeah. And on the other side of the spectrum, you have people calling for ijtihad as well, but they're not yeah. from a um, pseudo-Salafi background. They come from Sunni, traditional Sunni backgrounds, meaning initially they were adopt either the Maliki school yeah, or they have the Hanafi school or the Shafi'i yeah. school or the Hanbali school and then they move on to mm. this uh, reformist mindset. Yeah. Like in America you had Yasir Qadi mm. who in the early 2000s was following pseudo-Salafism yeah. and then he moved to uh, the reformist so he called yeah. Rashid Rida and yeah. others now. Mm. And then you have people from a traditional Sunni background mm. and they move to this reformist yeah. uh, mindset of ijtihad and what this leads to is what you're saying is um, an Islam or a practice of Islam which is unrecognizable yeah, it's, it's, it's not recognized in the Muslim heartlands and I think, so I, what I'm saying is fiqh minorities open the door for that fiqh minorities was, was the start was the, like, they started the ball rolling with that because then what you got after that was when they had the big unity pact, which I think was in 2007, where when you, the people from those two backgrounds, you know, you said the pseudo-Salafis and the, tradi- you know, the traditional Muslims, they came together and said, we're all together, we're united. And, uh, and then they also said in that statement that, that Muslims shouldn't study theology in depth. 
they said that you should just stick to the six pillars of faith just stick to um, you know Allah his angels his books his messengers and so that's it which I as I raise in my book I, I find that really disturbing because as a believer and you you want to build your relationship with Allah you need to know who Allah is and what he's promised to you so if you're not gonna if you're not gonna talk about Allah's promise of salvation based on faith alone you're not gonna talk about seeing Allah in the hereafter you're not gonna talk about having a direct relationship with Allah in this life without the intermediary of a priest or whatever it is and you put those things aside because you don't want to have controversy and you make the theology just very stale and whatever it is just standardized and you don't go any deeper you're cutting people off and these are these are major things within Sunni theology but if people don't study Sunni theology they will not be able to counter uh, current trends like uh, militant atheism yeah, the one, yeah there's there's that aspect of it and there's also the personal act, aspect of just developing your relationship with Allah how are you going to do the that spiritual uh, yeah spiritual aspect how, how are you going to do that if you don't know what Allah has promised you how Allah is addressing you in the Quran the fact that you're supposed to be having a direct relationship with him but here uh, I want to get on to motives so the okay. uh, promotion of fiqhul qaliyat mm. primarily has two motives I can see one is political motivation mm -hmm. and secondly um, for fiqhul qaliyat this is minority fiqh is considering Islam difficult to follow as yeah. it is yeah this is a common trend now yeah where people find Islam difficult to follow meaning because they find it difficult to get up and performable even though mm. I was just with you now yeah and we were discussing about praying Asr time yeah Asr Salah yeah the late noon prayer yeah and you said to me you're a traveler as a Shafi'i yeah you've combined Zohar and Asr yeah Asr yeah so I would see that as ease yeah that's easy yeah. so uh, Imam uh, Jalaluddin Asiyuti rahimallah has a book called Jazilul Mawahib Fikhtilaf mm. al-Madahib mm. where he mentions the four schools as being like the Qira'at mm. even though the Qira'at are, mans are directly from the Prophet he left sallallahu a aspect of the religion yeah. which Imam Zahid al-Kawfri says 20% of the legal rulings open mm. for debate by people, scholars who are uh, qualified to perform ijtihad. Mm -hmm. So this was for ease for the nation. So ikhtilaf ummati rahma, even though some people contest mm. the authenticity of the hadith, the statement is true. Ikhtilaf yeah. ummati rahma, but ikhtilaf in those furu, mm. the 20%. Yeah. So you were able to perform your Zohar and Asr with ease. Mm. So what difficulty are they referring to? Meaning if you look at the four schools mm. and the ease that is found, for instance, M&M's, mm. the sweets, yeah. they have uh, one of the M&M's which is uh, red colored, yeah. is made from beetles, Okay. beetle extract. Okay. Yes. So in the Hanafi school that would be haram because it's from Hasharat okay. insects. But in the Maliki school, mm. that would be permitted. Okay. Yes? Yeah. So what difficulty are they referring to? Meaning you have the four schools. And by the way, this brings us to another discussion, which is not to do with our, meaning regarding taking from the four schools. and But that's not our yeah. subject. But what difficulty are they referring to? Because when I study uh, the four schools, mm. uh, I read 
two volumes of Alamul Anam mm. with uh, Sheikh Nuruddin Aitr. His mm. own work, Alamul Anam, two volumes of that work. The Shah Abdul Maram. No, no, Sheikh Nuruddin Aitr. Yeah. His com- yeah, commentary on Bulugh Maram. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yes. And uh, that was Al Fiqh Al Muqaran, looking at the four schools and their proofs. And so all we observe is ease in the four schools. Mm. So what difficulty are they referring to as minorities? Because both of us are born in the West. Yeah. Yes. Mm. We grew up in the West. Yeah. Personally, I know that there's difficulties in certain things. Yeah. But there are many of these things which people bring up have more of a political motivation and another aspect of an inferiority complex which is another part of your book yeah so yeah. do you see how all these things yeah, are? Tie up, yeah so go into that a bit about this because you coming from what they call uh, a white background I call it anglo-saxon yeah people call it white background but yeah I call it anglo-saxon background me coming from what they term me as a minority background mm. How would you relate to uh, this inferiority complex some Muslims have? Yeah, I th- I, I think, because my ancestors were part of the colonization of India. Um, I, do, I do have an ancestor called John Bascom Locke, who was beheaded by the Faradi movement in the Punjab. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 150 years ago. So... I, I, I do think, you know, the, the, the English, and Imam Abulti talks about this at length in Kublai Kant and Konia. You know, the English didn't just come in there and take the riches and go. They, they did think long term. And they, and they did want to, um, how can I best put it? They, wa- they really wanted to break the people. And colonize the minds. Yeah, colonize their minds. Malcolm X said that. He said, said what's it's not a colonized land, is a colonized mind. If your mind is colonized, then nothing else matters. So, uh, there was a niftar mm. at, uh, in the masjid, one of the masajid, and they invited me and they called the Lord Mayor. And the Lord Mayor was an African mm. woman of African descent, yeah, West Indian def- mm-hmm. African descent, mm. and a woman. Yeah. So I went, and I when they told me to give the lecture mm. so majority of the people there are Muslims mm. they had some non-Muslims some Anglo-Saxon English non-Muslims and some other non-Muslims and I invited them all to Islam okay. and told them that giving charity we do not give charity in this country in order to impress you mm. we give it for the sake of God Okay. so they were upset at that speech not the non-Muslims the Muslims were upset yeah. The non-Muslims were happy. Yeah. The the Muslims were yeah. upset at that speech. It's like it's it's a shame thing. I mean, I I see a lot of these people. It's not it's not just Asians. I I think even some you know Anglo-Saxon converts. I think one term I coined to myself. I said it's it, it, it's it's like they're, they're the bad smell brigade. And what I mean by that, I'm not saying they smell bad. What I'm saying is they treat Islam like a bad smell. It's like they're always apologizing for it. Like, excuse me, I haven't, I've just come, come from the gym. Please, you know, excuse me, pardon me. I need to go home, have a shower. I forgot my itter at home or something like this. That's what they tend to talk about Islam. They're always apologizing for it. They're always making excuses for it and saying, no, it doesn't really mean that. We don't really say that. You know, and they, they take it too far where it gets to the point where people who aren't Muslims see it as ridiculous. Like, there are so many times, I've lost count of how many times I've been in a situation where... Uh, 
I'm sat with someone who's not a Muslim. Uh, it could be at work, it could be in a cafe, it could be on a train, we're just talking or something. And a Muslim will just interrupt and be like, and, and, and say to me like, oh, because I'm dressed like this. Oh, you don't have to dress like that. All nervously. First, A, where did you come from? B, why are you assuming that it's a problem? Why are you, why are you assuming that? That's my... actually happened where you've had a Muslim. Yeah, yeah a Muslim has said something. And it's, and it's, and it's assumed that, that the way I'm dressed is giving him panic attacks or something, right? And then, and then this guy who's not Muslim comes to my defense. And says, you know what, I like what he's wearing. But here, you know, with this dress code, yeah. uh, relating that to minority fiqh, uh, some people have made an issue of, uh, me, both of us are we wearing thobe. Yeah. So we're wearing a thobe now. I wear a thobe because I'm comfortable in a thobe. Yeah. I've been wearing thobes from the age of 13. Yeah. So I'm comfortable in a thobe. Yeah. But some people, they don't feel comfortable me wearing a thobe. I mean, Muslims yeah. who are not comfortable with yeah. me or you wearing a thobe. Yeah. So there are some people attempting to appease that crowd yeah. by saying the garment is not as important. But there is something known as Sha'airul Islam. Exactly. Yeah. Which is hallmarks of a Muslim yeah. <clears throat> and Islam. That mindset, does it relate to what we term as minority fiqh? Or people who are adopting minority fiqh, meaning in order to feel comfortable amongst non-Muslims. Because yeah, I, what happened when I was returning back from the West yeah, Indies, yeah. I met a person who was from a pseudo-Salafi background, mm. who said to me, how do you travel? Mm. Do you not get into trouble wearing these kind of clothes while doing international flights? And I said, no, why should garments yeah. cause a problem for me? Yeah, I, I the same issue because I always fly like this. I always fly this. I've been to the U.S. like this. I've been here like this. I've never had an issue. Again, but it has to do with mindset. It has to do with mindset. Because you're bringing this point about inferiority complex. It has to do with mindset. Like if if you go, if you go if you go around like in an airport and 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 you have that look on your face where you're like, right, and you look, you, you you automatically draw suspicion to yourself. It's like a self fulfilling prophecy. Like you go into an airport and you're standing in line and you're, oh, people are looking at me. Right, the police will come up to you, or security will come up to you and question you, and then you can scream Islamophobia and all that stuff. But no, you brought that on yourself. If you act totally normally, and you act like the way I'm dressed is totally normal, there's nothing weird about it. People will not say anything. But if you treat it as if it is something weird, but in a culture, in a Western culture, mm. where you have people dressing all kinds of ways, yeah, you have people dressing in some people, so many different ways. Why or, or barely it, dressed at all. Yeah, so uh, some of them look like they're ready to go into the shower. Yeah. Meaning on the road. Yeah. So why would our, uh, what people term as Islamic garb mm. or Eastern or yeah. um, uh, exotic clothing, why would our clothing be a problem for p people? Why is it a problem for Muslims? It's an inferiority complex. Because again, the whole time that I, that I wear a thobe, the only issue I get is from Muslims. I've never ever had a problem with, with, with a disbeliever. Never. But do you think that's uh, because you're white? No, because I get, I get backed up from stories people like you, people like other teachers I know. They, they say the same thing. They've never had a problem from someone who's like not a Muslim. I've never had a problem with the... It's always been Muslims. Muslim. It's always, the grief has always come from Muslims. So does that fall into uh, also political uh, is political Muslims, not political Islam, mm. uh, in the West, mm. who 
may adopt minority fiqh mm. because it suits their political agenda. Because I've had uh, or heard of people listening to our televangelist muftis or mm. people giving these minority fiqh type of rulings and relating to those people because mm. it suits what they want to promote in their political agenda. So you have people in the Labour Party liberal dem uh, democrats mm. and even the conservatives because the conservatives in this country mm. are no longer conservative yeah they're very leftist now meaning they they were the ones who introduced homosexual marriages mm. into uh, the I mean, law. Uh, legislation yeah so you have muslims in these political parties that uh, will further lgbt um, activism in those political parties or elsewhere but yeah. they will claim to be Muslim yeah. and they will adopt minority fiqh and so th those scholars who are promoting minority fiqh are kind of appealing to that type of crowd so there's, there's political motives but also an in inferiority complex which is... Yeah, it's, it's, it's a mindset because again if people are coming here, if people are coming to these, co to these countries not thinking about how can I uh, establish myself here as a Muslim, how can I preach Islam here, right? Which is some, one of the things that, that uh, Imam Muhammad Zuhaili mentioned in his fatwa about, someone asked him a question about migrating to the West and taking up citizenship. And he said, you're, you're, if you're going to go out there, A, it should be short term. If you're just going out there to study or to seek medical treatment or whatever it is, that's fine. Or you have some sort of, you know, some trade to do, that's fine. But if you stay there long term, your 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 mission is da'wah. You have to be because what we want to see is we want to see Darul Kufr become Darul Islam. Now, before people get scared and alarmed by that, what he means is by persuasion and conviction, right? We have to preach the faith and bring people that way. But if you're going to be out there and your faith is going to be watered down and eroded over time, then you get out. You can't. You shouldn't be there. So if people are here with another intention, they've come out here to get a better standard of living, to make some money. They just want to fit in. That's what it looks like. They just want to fit in. They don't want to cause any sort of... Controversy. What I've always thought is a lack of confidence in Islam yeah. is due to a, a weakness of Iman, a weakness of faith. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, And a weakness of faith is due to what? Weakness of faith? A lack of knowledge? Uh, 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 but someone would say some of these... Du'at, callers to Islam have immense knowledge regarding Islam. Mm. It's, a, it, it's a lack of knowledge, but, but I think, one of the, again, one of the things I, I got in the book, there's knowledge, but there's also, you, you have to go back to, we had a discussion with that brother in the message, subhanAllah, well, like why people became, why people become Muslim in the first place, right? So, one of the things I got to, because, you know, because I, again, I'm, in my book, I am talking more, I think, to, new Muslims as opposed to newly committed Muslims but you know you look at some of these prominent what I call spokesmen for Islam in the West or hippie converts as they call them these people a lot of these people they became Muslim in the 1970s at a time when Islam was hip and cool right it was the trendy thing to do it was radical it was it was counterculture it was anti-establishment and it's actually something that uh, myself and another brother Abu Nur al-Mizi <laughs> You know that is. We work this out. Um, so at that time, it was very cool to be Muslim. So they they got on that bandwagon, and they found it exotic. They found it exciting. So 
conviction was a secondary thing. Conviction was not the main thing why they became Muslim. So as long as Islam was cool and funky, they were with it. They were they were on the train. Uh, and this carried through from the 70s through to the 80s through the 90s. You remember the 90s, the, uh, the Malcolm X movie came out in 92 and so forth. But then 9-11 events, right? September 11, 2001, which I mentioned right at the beginning of my book. I say that's a, that's a major event. That's a seminal event. Because after that, like very, very quickly, it became very, very uncool. A lot of, our listeners, yeah. a lot of our listeners, younger yeah. Yeah. people, uh, were not even born in when 9-11 happened. Mm. And a lot of them were young children, so now they may be in their early 20s or in their, okay. in their teens. So they don't relate to what we talk about regarding pre-9-11 mm-hmm. and post-9-11. Yeah. They've not seen that shift. Mm. So many of them, the first type of thinking they've been introduced to is post-9-11. Yeah. But they won't see that radical shift regarding some of the, yeah. what you term as hippie uh, Muslim converts, yeah. how they shifted. Yeah. Meaning the the radical type of preaching that they did in the nineties, yeah, in the nineties, and then post nine eleven, they mm. they went to the other extreme mm. of being pro governments and pro foreign mm. policy, and yeah, and meaning shifting a lot of the blame on Muslims, yeah, because and that's what occurred after nine eleven. Yeah, it was, a, it was a it was a complete shit. But what what I was getting with the theory was that because Islam became uncool, they they sort of lost their their sort of enthusiasm for it. Because it was it was no it, Islam was no longer giving them what they wanted from Islam. Because one of the major things I point in that book is that when you become a Muslim, it's not about you, right? You're serving Allah and you're serving His religion. That's what you're doing now that you're a Muslim. You're not you're not becoming a Muslim because of what Islam can do for you. Because Islam can give you a warm and fuzzy feeling inside, or Islam can give you some money, or Islam can give you a social life. That's not why you're becoming a Muslim. You're becoming a Muslim to serve Allah. So like one of the line, Ubudiyya, servitude. Yeah, it's, it's, one of the things I said in the book was I said that, that the ship of salvation, which is what Islam is, the ship of salvation is open, it's there, anyone can get on board. But once you're on board, it's all hands on deck. Right? You, you have to get down to work. You can't be like waiting around for other people to serve you and take care of you. You have to put the effort in. And, and that's why I take it further before that. And I quote Imam uh, Muhammad Wali al-Sha'rawi, the great Egyptian scholar, because I translated a huge chunk of his uh, tafsir when I was living in Morocco. And uh, he mentioned one time where he was in uh, America, and uh, someone asked him about the apostasy ruling. They said, why is it that an, an, an apostate is executed? What's the reason for, for this? And he switched around. He said, he said, he said that, that, that ruling is, is less to do with someone leaving the faith and more to do with someone entering the faith it's quality control you mentioned that in the book yeah, yeah i mentioned the book it's, it's quality control yeah it's quality control we, we don't want if you're not going to be serious about this we don't want you this isn't a bingo club this isn't a, a sunday afternoon tennis club if you're not serious don't join so and and i i i, I always put that at the forefront of my mind so you know if we go back to the, the, the clothing issue if if if, if my clothing something similar to my clothing Makes someone feel uneasy and they and they get put off. Fine, I, I don't I don't want to attract every single person to Islam because I know that certain that, that the majority of humanity will reject it. I don't want to attract everyone. I want the high quality people, the low maintenance people. Because again, in the book, I take it back further because there's the the verse in the Quran, Surah Al-Araf, I one seventy two, 
where Allah, where Allah gathers all the souls of humanity. And this is before they come into the world. This is Alasti Rabbikum. And they call Ubalash Hidna. I want not your Lord. And they, they, they all testify. Imam Abdul Rahman al Jozi, Rahimullah, in his tafsir, Zad al Masir, he points it out. He says that when this statement was made, some people meant it, and some people didn't mean it. Everyone said bala, but not everyone was saying the truth. And whatever you said on that day, that's your that's your fate. That's what's going to happen. Some of them were delayed as well. In yes. Saying bala. Yes. Here, uh, um, my uh, um, theological mm. um, warring with some of these people yeah. over the past few years. Mm. What I observed is that they don't have a depth when it comes to kalam. So mm-hmm. you may have a theological dispute. Mm. So I will say to you, to an individual, that to state that the Lahori Qadianis are believers and because they believe Mirza Ghulam Ahmad Qadiani was the Mahdi and not a prophet. Mm. Meaning one of these guys, while teaching Aqeedah to Ahli Sunnah wal Jama'ah, so he's te- a te- teaching Al Imam uh, Abu Ja'far al Tahawi's text. Mm. And when it comes to the point of Khatmun Nabiyyin, yeah. he points out things like saying the the Qira'ah of the verse Ma kana Muhammadun Aba Ahadim Mir Rijalikum Balakir Rasulallahi Khatmun Yeah, he states that there's two Qira'ahs. Okay. Which there are two Qira'ahs. One is Khatam and one is Khatim. Yeah. But he mentions that after saying that Mirza Ghulam Ahmad Qadiani, his group is two mm-hmm. groups. One is the mainstream and one is the Lahori Qadianis yeah. that believe Mirza Ghulam was the Mahdi. So oh. we don't consider them as disbelievers. Okay. So after mentioning that, mm. he says, look, the verse has two recitations, Khatim and Khatim. It's interesting and he moves on. Mm. Meaning... I refuted him on that after, and he did retract because of, because of yeah. Al-Azhar Fatwa, not because of me, because yeah. of Al-Azhar, yeah. Yeah. as if we, uh, we have blind faith in Al-Azhar, because in, in Aqaid, in, in beliefs, there is no blind faith to an institution. Or. Yeah. So, what I found, uh, two things I observed from that, um, and not only that dispute, other disputes as well, was number one, was the lack of depth in kalam. Yeah. So they have a very uh, surface-based... Superficial. Uh, superficial approach to kalam, translation of a text, mm. but there's no intellectual, rational, and spiritual depth mm. to understanding kalam. Because some people disassociate kalam mm. from uh, spirituality. Yeah. But if you read the works, like Hashatul uh, Dasuqi, and you read... Uh, even Al-Bajuri, these are latecomers, but more importantly, Al-Imam Sanusi. Yeah. You will realize all of these major mutakallimin, or majority of them, Sunni mutakallimin, were Sufis. Mm. Yeah. Al-Imam Abu Hamid Al-Ghazali being yeah. one of the one major, forefront, yeah. Yeah, at the forefront of that. So the first thing I noticed was their lack of depth, mm. which I believe is the reason for their la- weakness of Iman when it yeah. comes to when a fitna, a tribulation comes their way, they don't know how to handle it. Their iman goes un- undergoes yeah. a, a test. A test. Yeah. And the second thing is how they will leave subtle hints. Yeah. 
and not say something explicitly until exactly, yeah. uh, the zeitgeist passes is the right time yeah because they they, they, they tend to do that I, I know they tend to the law they tend to um, sort of say everything's a difference of opinion so w- why mention the qira'ah of khatim and khatim and then later on hold conferences and you invite a representative of the qadiani community and then a third thing is associating theological disputes with violence yeah so if we were to refute uh, the Qadiani or what people term as the Ahmadiyya, yeah. we, we refute them. This does not entail yeah. that we call for violence against a group or persecution of a group or murdering of a group. But that's, 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 that's but a they've, they've associated theological disputes with violence and politics. Yeah. So if I refute the Shia and, uh, and uh, Bahthul Imama yeah. leadership, I'm not calling for killing of Shia in Iraq and yeah. Lebanon and yeah, well, other places uh, yeah. of the, for the Shia to be persecuted mm. in, in as a minority. No, meaning our dispute is theological, but it doesn't mean that there is no ta'ayush uh, living as a community, as mm. the way we live with other communities. But, but the, what they've gone and done mm. is associated theological disputes with violence. Mm-hmm. Or if you're embroiled in theological disputes, you, you're a... Um, repugnant individual yeah. who has no basic manners, you cannot sit and dialogue, but they won't tell the audience that Imam Fakhruddin al-Razi rahimullah, spent majority of his life refuting yeah. uh, deviants. As, as an Imam Abu Hamid al-Ghazali, refuting the Bafi. But, they, so but with Imam Abu Hamid, they attempt to say regarding him that toward the end of his life, Mm. Because he moved into Tasawwuf, he moved away from uh, refuting, which is incorrect. Mm. He still refuted uh, yeah. the because with the incorrect belief, mm. you can have no spirituality. Yeah, exactly. Meaning a Buddhist monk yeah. can sit for days and months mm. without food and perform acts of worship, but why does he not attain maqamul ihsan? Yeah. Because the belief is incorrect. Yeah, there's actually there is a story. I think it's Imam Hassan al-Basri had a story like that where where he said, he, he said, uh, I believe it was him, about, please correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it was him, where he said that he reached a status, he reached a station with Allah, a maqam with Allah, where every prayer was like a nephil. That's how it felt. Every prayer was a nephil. Like, that's how he was praying with so much joy and peace. And then he lost that maqam. He said he lost that maqam once because an innovator said something in his presence and he didn't refute him. You see, there, there's, a, there's a clear connection there. Between having sound theology and refuting, but the same people would also uh, uh, make the audience think that certain sins mm. are greater than innovation. Mm-hmm. Meaning okay. downplaying bid'ah, yeah, bid'ah and belief, yeah, not bid'ah and practice, bid'ah and belief. So a person can have a bid'ah and belief, mm. and there, there's a tolerance for that, yeah. But there's a lack of tolerance for other things, yeah. which we would term as being faru. Yeah. I remember they made an, a, a, a documentary regarding Imam Abu Hamid al-Ghazali. Yeah. And in that documentary, an actor plays Imam Abu Hamid al-Ghazali, rahimahullah. And in that documentary, uh, they portray Imam Abu Hamid al-Ghazali as being someone as tolerant towards uh, innovators and heresy. But being intolerant towards 
heresy or innovators doesn't mean we're intolerant towards them in terms of living. Exactly, no, the, yeah, it just means the, the belief is, yeah, yeah, is yeah, refuted yeah, yeah, logically. Distinguish, you have to distinguish between, between, between the, the belief and the person. That's, that's, the, that's the thing they don't understand because I've, I've seen this as well, especially on like the leftist side, of the, like in, in the American media they do this a lot. They'll say that you know, if you believe, they'll go after like Christians for example, they say like if you belong to a Christian sect and you believe that other people are, are damned and they're not going to be saved, you're just a terrible person. That means you want them to die. That means you want them to have their, lump, their limbs chopped off or something like that. No, no, it doesn't mean that at all. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that at all. It, it just means that they're not saved. It's, so it's, you, theological. it's theological. You mentioned the four things, that minority fiqh was one. What were the others? Uh, the, the second one was the, the unity pact that they did. This, the so-called Salafi Sufi unity pact of, I think it was 2007. What problems did you have with this unity pact? Because this unity issue, I, I have a lot of discussions with different segments of our Sunni community mm -hmm. on uh, these unity issues. So in the subcontinent, people call for us unity with everyone and anyone. They call mm -hmm. them sulh kulli. Yeah. This is what they term them as being someone who makes sulh. Mm -hmm. A kulli meaning a universal sulh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, this has a very dif exact meaning. Yeah. There's a fiqh mm. to this also. Yeah. But what did this unity pact uh, entail? This particular one. Well, I thought it was. I thought it was number one. It was utterly useless, because first of all, no one who's no one who's signing that thing is any sort of form of authority, right? These people are not authorities in standing in terms of the Muslim world. They're not. Number one. Number two. It doesn't mean anything on paper because what what are you actually uniting upon? What, 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 if, if we ha are going to unite on something, we have to unite on certain principles or beliefs, whatever it is. The differences between the two sides are so great. There is no unity. There there is no there is no common ground. Their understanding of tawhid is different. Their understanding of fiqh is totally different. We don't agree in anything. This is uh, between Sunni Muslims. Yeah. Uh, and who we define as Sunni, Shari Maturidi, and the real Afari, non Taimian yeah, yeah. Afaris, and the followers of the four schools. So, yeah. uh, the pseudo Salafi, this is just for our audience, yeah. uh, the pseudo Salafi movement would say uh, Ibn Taymiyyah and the Hanbalis who follow Ibn Taymiyyah are Sunni, but we would say the Hanbalis who, do, who are Afari, they are Sunni. So, that's one distinction. The pseudo-Salafi movement would say the Ash'aris and the Maturidis are not Ahl-Sunnah wal-Jama'ah mm -hmm. and we would say they are Ahl-Sunnah wal-Jama'ah. But going back to the unity pact, yeah. so me and you, I think we would agree that when it comes to, to theological disputes, Sunni Muslims should rationally, yeah. logically, yeah. intellectually, yeah. uh, refute any heresy that raises yeah, its yeah. head uh, amongst uh, Sunni Muslims, whether irrelevant to what sect that person may belong to. Mm. Even amongst our own, meaning people who are uh, nominally described as being Sunni Muslims, if they come up with something which is a heresy, uh, scholars should take them up on that issue. But the, pr the problem is that that becomes politicized after. Yeah. Because it, it does cause well, yeah, because because it's like the, the greatest it's like the greatest crime out here is like disunity. Don't call don't 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 call for disunity. Don't call for don't don't cause disunity. That seems to be the biggest crime out here. I mean, if you refute anyone, if you criticize anyone, now you're uh, you're guilty of spreading fit. You're divisive. You're divisive. And but how would you how would you say 
see, we are, like I said, there's a fiqh mm. to association with Ahlul Bidah. Yeah. And in my phone conversations with one of the prominent du'at from the US, yeah. he actually said that to me, which he is correct. Mm. Meaning, in my phone conversation, he said to me, there is a fiqh to those ahadith narrations or the um, also uh, the statements of As-Salaf Salihun regarding association with Ahlul Bidah. So the hadith states, Man waqara sahiba bidatin faqad a'ana ala hadmil islam. Whoever yeah. venerates a person of bid'ah innovation, he has a'ana uh, helped in destruction, the destruction of Islam. Yeah. But there is a fiqh to association. So how do we make a distinction between associating with Ahlul Bidah where it is a common objective, like RSE now, mm. relationships and sexual education. Mm. You have Sunni ulama working alongside with Christians, Jews, uh, yeah. within Muslims, uh, different sects within Muslims, which is fine, meaning I don't think you would have a problem with that. I wouldn't have a problem with that. Yeah. But some people cannot see the distinction between these two yeah, because because that, that that's a, that's a common cause. That, that's that, that where you have a common problem that you need to address. It's the same as you know if you were to work with Christian or Jewish neighbors to to clean up the litter on your street or to clean up your park or to. So, like, if I call for a debate with a, a local vicar and we meet up, which does happen by the way, and we discuss theological disputes. So my local vicar he comes to my house mm. or we go out together and have a coffee, but uh, we actually debate. Mm. We will debate regarding the divinity of Christ. Mm -hmm. uh, we'll debate regarding the prophet, prophethood of the Prophet وسلم, regarding the, the Bible, mm. regarding the Quran. But we're still friends. People would term us as being friends. Yeah. And if there's a common cause like litter picking or we need to do something, if I can do that with a local vicar, mm. why can't I uh, debate a Muslim Mm. on our theological disputes and make it very clear we dispute these things but when there's a common cause we can uh, work in in that common cause you mean with with uh, like Christians and Jews you mean the or way we can with Christians and Jews why yeah. can't Muslims amongst themselves uh, because what I'm seeing is that there's two extremes here mm -hmm. there's an extreme of where people will not refute yeah even though that the person is uh, theologically deviant, yeah. they will stay totally silent. Mm. Those people would be sinful mm -hmm. because the hadith says, فَلْيُظْهِرِ الْعَالِمُ عِلْمَهُ That in the end times when the, the Sahaba being cursed and mm. the, the alim, the, the learned man must make his knowledge apparent, meaning in refuting them. Yeah. But then there's the other side where they will work with them in every other thing, but they won't refute them. Yeah. Um, what I'm saying is, can there be uh, scholarship where, or scholars amongst themselves, where ulama who refute the deviants, mm. but when there's a need to work on common goals, uh, certain ulama they can work on those common goals. Is that achievable amongst Muslims? That's a tricky one because it would have to be done in a way that's not public, uh, if you know what I mean. It's, it's because the po the point is, is that Ahlussunnah al-Jamaah is not meant to be seen as or presented as equal. 
to any cult, you know, whether it's the Shia or the Khwarij, whatever. It's not meant to be presented as equal in any way, shape, or form. You know, like a, a, Mus- uh, a Sunni Muslim scholar is not the equal of a deviant. Yeah, one of their leaders, whatever it is. It's not. It's not the same thing. Now. If, if, so if it's to work on some sort of common issue, like you're mentioning these schools thing, that, yeah, that's that, I would see that as merely as an act of convenience that you get it done. But it's it, it should never be presented as or allowed to think that they're sort of your equal or that they are the same on the same par as you. That's that's what I would be aware of. Yeah, yeah. So uh, in that regard, um, if certain Sunni ulama had refuted some of these deviant groups. Mm. As they should, meaning it's a farida and a, uh, an obligation yeah. on, a, on, on groups of Sunni ulama to refute deviants. Yeah. How would they strike a bi- balance with working with them when they see a pressing need? Personally, I don't see a pressing need, even though different groups of people do call me. Mm. But I, the way I see things is, if you unite our Sunni Muslims in this day and age, it's a great achievement. Yeah. Never mind. Uh, uniting with other groups, but I'm, I'm not quick to condemn a scholar unless I've looked at all the different angles as to why he's associating with mm. certain groups. So how do we make a fine balance of having that uh, husnuvan? Yeah. How would you translate husnuvan? Having a good opinion or benefit of the doubt. Having benefit of the doubt for such doubt. scholars, yeah. because I'm not seeing a balance of giving benefit of the doubt mm. from one side, and from the other side. Um, there's not ample refutation of deviant beliefs, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Because so, you, so what you're saying is that there, there tends to be more of this dependence on unity and where you're working side by side with these people, but you're not actually so you'll have, warning them or preaching against them. Or, at one point, or, you'll have uh, a call for unity, mm. but there's no uh, delineation of the parameters of orthodoxy, Sunni. So. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And, that, and then you'll have from people from another side who won't work with deviants, but they won't give good opinion of those scholars who work with deviants. Mm. Uh, in some cases, those scholars may be very innocent of what they are accused of. I mean, I'm not seeing a balance okay. of these two things. But what were the main uh, problems you had uh, with the Unity Pact? So going I, back to that, yeah, why the point? So, so, the, so the unity pact is not is 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 the fact that it's stated on paper, but it doesn't no, has has no effect. This is my second point. It has no effect on the ground because some of the major signatories to it, um, you know, they they were asked online right away, like especially from from you know what you were saying the Sunni Salafi side, they were saying. Like, what are you doing? Are you saying that the Ashuris are, are, are Sunnis? Are you saying that they're this or that? Like, no, 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 they're still deviants, they're still wrong. It was just to come together to calm things down in the situation, to calm things down in, or in this current situation. So it, it, had, it had no real effect. It was just a piece of paper, right? The, those arguments and disputes stayed as they were. Um, but the third thing, which I don't, I don't know, I, I, I find this, I'm not saying it's the worst thing, but I find it really disturbing, I mentioned this before, is the fact that you're, you're, you tell in common believers, just study your six pillars of faith and that's it. Like, like don't go any further in your theological studies. Just read you know, the Jibril Hadith and that's it, you're done. And how is that going to help you build your own relationship with Allah? How is that going to help you? Like, if, you, if you're not going to talk about seeing Allah in the hereafter, you're not going to talk about salvation by faith alone. Uh, 
and not deeds, which again is another uh, issue that some of these other people hold to, right? That salvation is by deeds. Exactly, right? Which means that you're in some sort of transaction with the law, which is <laughs> a big problem. So, if you don't talk about these things, and you're a Sunni Muslim and you're trying to grow in your faith, and you don't talk about these things, how are you going to grow? If you don't fully understand who Allah is, what He's promised so you, So if they had a, uni- doing- a unity pact with, let's say, the Shia, yeah. The Shia cursed the companions. Yeah, exactly. And we have a unity pact that we won't refute you. That would entail we don't refute you on when you curse the companions. Yeah. Or, for instance, if they had a unity pact with groups that say Allah can potentially lie. Yeah. Meaning that would mean we stay silent on. Yeah. Uh, on, whatever it is. on those theological issues when they are brought up. Yeah. These, these things become very problematic. There's no benefit in it. There's no benefit in. I don't see what the point of these these unity packs are because it's just, it's just it's just a piece of paper. It's just a piece of paper that says we met and we think this is what people should do. And they're not authority figures. They don't hold authority over anyone. They're, they're basically self-appointed people. They, they put themselves in these positions. And Again, uh, going back to what I mentioned in minority fiqh, don't you see there's a intertwining of politics? Mm-hmm. Uh, violence uh, regarding violence in the Middle East. Mm. Which, by the way, is mainly due to Western destabilizing of the Middle East. Yeah. Meaning prior to Saddam, Iraq... Was stable. <laughs> prior to Saddam being removed, yes. uh, Iraq was more stable yeah, than it so is now. Yeah. Even though Saddam himself, he led Iraq into the war yeah, yeah, the Iran, war in the 80s, yeah. But even that was... Uh, from uh, behind the doors, there was uh, behind closed doors. There were deals made with the West and mm-hmm. whatnot. Or oh, prior to destabilizing Syria, mm-hmm. Syria was more stable. Yeah. So violence that occurs in the Middle East, uh, people call for certain conferences. You must have heard of these conferences in Jordan, mm-hmm. where they not only call for unification of the four madhhabs, which are already unified as the Sunnah wal Jamaah. They add the Zaydis, yeah. the Twelve Shia. Yeah. They add the Ibadis. Yeah. Uh, Ibadiyya. It comes like seven madhabs or something, yeah. Yeah, and they made eight, uh, yeah. seven mm. madhahib, which was something new, meaning uh, we know that the Ijma'ah of Ahl Sunnah wal Jama'ah is on four madhahib. Mm. But then, additional to that, interlinking the madhahib to violence. Yeah. As if to say, your ijma that you claim Ahl Sunnah wal Jama'ah is four madhabs mm. would entail that you are violent extremists against other groups. The eighth one was the Salafis. Okay. But Lord. By, by, by saying that Ahl Sunnah wal Jama'ah is the four madhabs, Asharis and Maturidis and the Afaris, this is Ahl Sunnah wal Jama'ah, this is what the orthodoxy has been yeah, formed that's, around. That's the Swallow album. Does not entail that we call for violence against Zaydis in Yemen, yeah, or the Twelve Shia in Iraq. Meaning, uh, psychologically, this is what people are being brainwashed into by doing takfir of the Qadianis mm. or the Ahm- uh, what they call the Ahmadiyya, mm. because I don't want to as- ascribe them to the name Ahmad. So yeah. the Qadianiyya. Mm. In fact, some of our scholars would call them Ghulamiyya because the founder's name was Ghulam Ahmad. So does not mean that we call for violence against those groups. Yeah, yeah. But these conferences, my, uh, also the names yeah. of the people who signed the Unity Pact yeah. and the people who call for minority fiqh and the people who are influenced by Rashid Rida and Muhammad Abdul, mm. 
do you not see a yeah it's the same name it's the same name that's 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 one of those four things I mentioned in my book these four you know so the third abomination yeah so the third abomination was the Mardin declaration which is explained then because uh, yeah because that 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 was the third thing because and this was I think it was an outgrowth minority fit because that happened in two thousand and ten and this was led by a prominent Mauritanian scholar and certain others and they were you mean uh, Sheikh Abdullah bin Bayya yeah yeah well, I don't mention any names of the book but no. <laughs> you know in the book you didn't but again uh, just for the viewers mentioning the Sheikh's name doesn't mean Mahdi Luck is disrespecting the Sheikh it's intellectual uh, yeah. difference and uh, likewise when meaning whenever I mention names people again psychologically they associate that with being uh, disparaging a sheikh or yeah. uh, when that's not the case we are from traditional Sunni backgrounds we don't disrespect uh, the shiuch so, so that, that conference and that, and that was that conference was all centered on one hadith that Imam Taqdim Taymiyyah wrote about the people of Mardin uh, or, or that place was he was asked is it Dal Kufr or Dar al-Islam and he couldn't give a straight answer because he said it was ruled by the Tartars, by the Tatars, who he doubted. And Mardin in, is in modern-day Turkey. Yeah, yeah. yeah so because he, Mardini, the, yeah. the the famous author of uh, the commentary on the Rahabiyya. Okay, Mardini. Yeah, yeah. So I'm sure, it's the same area. Yeah. So he, so he, so Imam Taqi Taymiyyah, he couldn't give a clear ruling because he said, he said on the one hand it's ruled by the Tatars, right? Uh, who he he had he doubted their Islam. He didn't think they were sincere in their Islam. They were still um, uh, uh, applying and implementing parts of their older law. I forget the name now, but it's, it's all written down. I have links on my blog for this. So he didn't. So he, so he said, "I don't want to call it Dar al Kufr." Um, or he said, "I don't want to call it Dar al Islam on those grounds because I'm wary because he was wary of the nature of the rulers." And this is Ibn Taymiyyah. Yeah, talking about the Imam talking about Ibn Taymiyyah. Because there's another famous one, there's Medjudin in Taymiyyah, which is the grandfather. The grandfather. Yeah, who's the Muhtamin uh, uh, source of the Methib. And then he didn't want to call it Dar al-Kufr because the, the majority were Muslims, right? He felt that wouldn't be right, because the majority of people in there are Muslims, or all of them are Muslims. So they extrapolated from this ruling, which again, um, Imam Shamsin al-Mufli al-Hanbali, who's one of his students, he comes later with his own book, the author of Al-Adabu Sharia, right? And he points out that he quotes this fatwa from Imam Taqdim Taymiyyah and says, "Yes, but the Mutamazition of our school is: if Muslims rule, it's Dar al-Islam; if unbelievers rule, it's Dar al-Kufr. End of. That's, there's no." While in the Hanafi school, by the way, yeah. um, in fact, in the other three schools as well. Uh, in the other three schools, if the disbelievers take over a Muslim country, it still remains Darul Islam. Yeah, that's what was yeah, the three the three madhabs. Yeah. In the Hanafi school, there's three conditions for that. But overall, they believe that even if non-believers rule an area, it still remains Darul Islam. Yeah. So Spain would be Darul Islam technically. Yeah. But in the Hanafi school, it wouldn't. Because the Sha'irul Islam have been done away with. Yeah, okay. But India would remain as Darul Islam because the Sha'irul Islam are still there. Okay. But this doesn't mean those scholars are calling for absence of jihad. So, occupied Palestine. Yeah. Is Darul Islam. Yeah. Technically. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't mean that 
the occupation should not be fought against. Yeah, yeah. So now, what they did from this, uh, what they did from this uh, Mardin Mardin Declaration, this this this, this fatwa Imam Now, again, Imam Shafi'i al-Mufli commenting on that fatwa afterwards tells you that it's not canon. It's not the Mu'tamad. It's not position of Madhab. It's just a rare ruling. But they take that and then branch out from it and say that Darul Islam and Darul Kufr don't exist anymore. Oh, okay, so <laughs> isn't Sheikh uh, bin Baya also responsible for saying that the Khilafah mm. is no longer applicable because the secular state fulfills the role of the Khilafah? Is, this is what I, I, was I, I, told. Don't, I, I don't know if he said that. I mean, but there are some people who've, who've said that the modern secular state preserves religion, mm. uh, looks after the affairs of religion. Yeah. That, well, well, one of the things. Okay. What what they get to in that in that in that in that fatwa? So well, this declaration they made is that first, so they do away with Kufr Dal Islam. They say it doesn't exist anymore. The whole world is one abode. Then they take it further. And they say that because, because, because of international treaties and international organizations, uh, international charters and so forth, the world has achieved, human beings on earth have achieved peace and security, and therefore this is the most that the Sharia can hope for. The, 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 the way the world is now is what the Sharia has... So uh, the new uh, world order, Novus Ordus Clorum, the new secular. They, they don't. They don't say that explicitly. But but what we have is uh, is uh, mm. with the UN Charter. I mean, for him to claim that there's peace in the world is absurd because well, it's, it's, not, it's not him. Just all, it's all the signatories now. So how many signatories were there? Uh, I think it was something like fifteen to twenty people who were involved in this. Now, there's which th- prominent Muslims? Were there any prominent? Uh, yeah, there, there was. A they were all Muslims. Yeah, they're all Muslims. Yeah, yeah. they're all Muslims. Prominent scholars, also. Yeah. No, the point. The point here is, the point. The point. There's two. There's two interesting points here to make. Okay. Number one. Out of these fifteen twenty people, out of these fifteen twenty people, not a single person was from the Hamadi Methib. Yeah. Right. Which that that is quite dubious. Right. Like because the fatwa was based on the Hamadi Methib. Right. That, that that would be really weird. Like if you, if you got together and had a major conference. To discuss some rare fatwa of Imam Muhammad al-Ghazali, and there's not a single Shafi scholar present. It's just it's, it's Hanafis and Malikis discussing or something like that. That that would just look dubious. And this was again, this is 2010. This is before the crisis broke out in Syria. Um, there are loads of Hanbali scholars just across the border in Damascus and Duma. Yeah, Duma's filled with the Hanbalis. Exactly. That's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a Hanbali stronghold. You couldn't you couldn't speak to one of them, invite them up, and or consult them first. So so none of them are invited. That's I find really really you know interesting to say the least. The second thing that's really interesting is the fact that, or I find more than interesting, quite amazing, is that Imam Muhammad Sirah al Bulti in his book Fiqh Sirah, which first came out in the 1960s, he talks about he quotes Imam Muhammad Zuhaili who wrote his PhD thesis. Uh, I think it was called. Um, Something called Fikl Harb, I think it was. I forget the exact name now. But it was like the the Ahkam of Harb. And what they they both say, is what they both say is 
they say they said they give a prediction. Okay, this is in the 1960s. I've, I've, I've dated this back maybe as early, definitely earlier than 1968. Is they say that what we're going to see in the future in the West is you're going to have people in the West who will try to completely distort what jihad is. So they're going to say people on the one side of the spectrum. They're going to say uh, it's all terrorism. It's all just murder, raping, and pillaging, blowing up buildings, killing people. That's what it is. Okay. And then, while Muslims are trying to formulate a response to this, while they're trying to formulate a response to this, there will be other non-believers on the other side of the spectrum, and they'll say, no, 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 Islam means peace. Islam is a religion of love. Pacifist religion. Exactly. Right? And then Muslims will get sucked into that and think, oh yeah, that's right, that sounds nice. And then they'll fall into that line. And... And they even say, they even say, Imam Muhammad Zuhaydi, Imam Muhammad Sayyidina Bulti, this is in Fiqh they say that Muslims will get sucked into this and they'll be told, you don't need to fight, you don't need to resist, because we have international treaties, we have international organizations in place, and, and everyone's rights are now secured, and blah, blah, blah. And that's happened now in 2000. Yeah, so, 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 so they were saying the 1960s, and it actually happened in 2010, it was the same wording pretty much. <laughs> Wasn't this uh, also similar to what he said in the 90s that there will be groups created that will tarnish the name of jihad, yeah. in the, uh, tarnish jihad in the name of jihad yeah. in order to undermine the Palestinian resistance? Meaning, now you have groups that tarnish the name of jihad yeah. by performing acts yeah. which are a violation mm. of uh, human rights, a violation of Islam. Mm but yet they term that as being jihad. Mm. So when they do that in the name of jihad, this distorts the valid jihad, yeah, yeah. or the valid resistance yeah. of the people of Palestine, or other people, because Palestine, the issue of Palestine is an Islamic issue, yeah. or it's a national issue. So you're saying the Mardin declaration was a fulfillment of uh, what they stated in the 1960s, and it's and it's a complete nullification because because if if we're going to say if we're going to say that the way the world is now is what the Sharia commands, then why is Imam Mahdi going to come? Why well, uh, why why is Isa uh, saying you mentioning Al Imam Al Mahdi radiAllahu and that's going on to uh, another issue, which is what people will say that people who hold the belief in Al-Imam Al-Mahdi are believing in, in uh, an apocalyptic yeah. Islam. I'll go into that shortly, but before going into that, by saying that the world is fine the way it is and the, and the mm. treaties that we have, uh, do they overlook world debt? Yeah. The, the IMF? Yeah. Just the poverty that the IMF brings about. Yeah. The, the, the murder involved in countries which are under debt, I mean murder of people, murdering yeah. of people, I mean 24,000 people die every day of hunger alone, yeah. Yeah. 24,000, that's minimum. Yeah. And then uh, additional to that, uh, the militarizing of many parts of the world mm. and uh, breaking of borders and uh, displacing of people, yeah. that occurs due to the Anglosphere. Yeah. So, how are these national treaties and uh, the new world order that we have, how is this a fulfillment of what Islam wants to achieve? Meaning it's the exact opposite of what Islam wants to achieve, because Islam came to abolish riba, mm. 
yeah. uh, interest-based loans and yeah. usury. And Islam came to bring peace. I mean, the legislation of jihad was to, uh, because the Quran states, cut off their tips. Yeah. Banan. Yeah. It doesn't say, meaning the metaphor used is the tips. Why? Because the tips are what is by what the disbeliever carries the sword with. Yeah. If you cut off his tips, mm. he's unable to show you aggression. Yeah. So the, the legislation of jihad, if you could uh, picture the disbeliever as a man, mm. meaning the whole disbelieving world, the only the, the legislation of jihad was only to cut off the tips, meaning the aggressive part is only the tips of the fingers. Yeah. So they can't continuously attack other nations as they have been doing from the opium wars in China yeah. until the modern age. So how is this... Uh, because these same people, what they stated recently was that the secular world order that we have is in fact a replacement of Khilafah. Yeah, that's basically what they're saying. And like you like you're pointing out, I mean, I, I don't know why they're saying this. There's no proof for it, but that was that was in that order. You see, I think, like again, it's the thick minorities that led to that Mardin Declaration. Um, and then after that, you got study Quran. This is number four now. Yeah. Of uh, your four, what did you tell? <laughs> abominations. The four abominations. Yeah. With the study Quran. Give us a bit of background from your perspective, because I did do a yeah an entire lecture on the study Quran. Yeah, but that's, I, was, I I found out about it because Abu Nur al-Mizzi he got in touch with me. Um, he was with you in uh, in Sham, uh, and he he broke it down for me, explained what was going on. He said that they're, they're bringing this new translation out of the Quran, and it's basically a a perennialist translation. While they're mentioning other sources but it's, it's largely perennial it's a lot of these ayat about what they call salvific exclusivity those ayat are watered down right they're, misinter they're misinterpreted whether it's Surah Al-Imran 19 or I-85 and so on and so forth Adin Allah Islam these kind of ayat original the law is Islam they're changing these ayat and it's being promoted um, heavily by people who are supposed to be Sunni Muslims Right, they're, they're, and, and you know, he sent me clips, and I listened to them. You know, people going on podcasts, people going to events, hosting events for the book in their own institutes, and saying you have to buy this book. This is the translation we've been waiting for. This is the translation that you can. Uh, it's the King James. Yeah, yeah. of uh, for them. Yeah, yeah. You can you know, buy this and give it to your non-Muslim neighbor. Say this is this is our book. This is what we believe, and um, so. What the brother did, I'm not missy. What he did is he wrote out a long, long refutation of it, uh, and I hosted it on my blog. I put it on my blog, and it's, I think until this day, it's still the highest <laughs> viewed post. It's like ten thousand and something, um, and everyone read it. Everyone got around to everyone, especially the people involved. They they actually read it, and I don't think. Some some people did not understand what 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 he was getting at, because um, we, we we got all we got all kinds of funny comments on there. People coming on and saying, uh, you know, you're being anti-intellectual, you're being this, you're being that. Why can't you understand that there are certain different people using like funky buzzwords with us? There are different psychological anthropologies, brother, that you need to understand. I was like, well, that's come back to me when we've learned some English man. It's like a psychological anthropologies yeah we're using funky terms 
or was it sociological anthropologies? Some some guy some guy had his word something anthropologies that he really liked using. Kept coming back on and using it. Um, this question regarding salvation, I just want to get into that with you, because when I refuted the study Quran, mm. I think a lot of new Muslims mm. they find it difficult to understand how their ancestors would be going hellfire. This is how certain people. Yeah. Term, this has been they're going to hellfire, meaning as if we know. Yeah. But when you study traditional Sunni Kalam, Bulughu Dawa is one of the conditions okay. that the religion of Islam reached them. Yeah. So many other our ancestors and your ancestors, meaning uh, we don't know who mm. the message of Islam reached. People living in Middle Ages England, mm. yeah, we don't know what message yeah. of Islam reached them. So salvation is something that goes beyond our understanding, meaning on the Day of Judgment, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala resurrects people who died in the plague, yeah. bubonic plague, mm. how many of them will achieve salvation, we do not know. Yeah. So, But some new Muslims have a crisis of faith, yeah. of reconciling the verses mm. that tell us that the kuffar khalidina fiha, mm. they will remain in the hellfire, mm. and the disbelievers uh, they are condemned by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So they don't know how to make a compatibility of those verses and their own experience. So that leads them to to finding a congruency yeah. uh, in uh, the study Quran or relating to the study Quran. Yeah. And like I mentioned to you earlier, some of them make a, a correlation between condemnation of other tenets of other groups yeah. or, and violence, uh, and violence. Yeah. likewise some of them make a correlation between affirming those verses of the Quran as th what they mean but at the same time understanding the uh, the depth mm. behind individual salvation yeah because in aqidah we learn that individual salvation uh, individual con uh, individual damnation mm. cannot be stated by uh, a human being regarding another human being, unless it's Mansus Ali, meaning stipulated in the Quran and Sunnah. Yeah. Otherwise, we don't know the actual end of an individual. We just judge on the apparent. Exactly. That's what that's all we're responsible for. So this emotional baggage that they have. So Rich, Rachel Curry, when she died in Palestine, uh, at that time, one of the Anglosphere scholars did say that if Rachel Curry is not in paradise I am in the wrong religion words to that effect okay so when Rachel Curry died mm. she I think she was killed by an Israeli uh, oh, was it a bulldozer she, yeah, she was a bulldozer, bulldozer yeah. yeah now for that uh, scholar to have said that and this is the same scholar who said regarding the Qadianis mm. I believe he was emotionally overwhelmed at the yeah. time yeah but like I said to you, lack of depth of theological issues mm. sometimes may make these people say such statements. Okay. Well, because if he had depth, he would have known. Mm. If Rachel Curry will have individual salvation, Allah knows best. Mm. But we judge on the apparent of our deen, of our religion, that yeah. we're not permitted to pray a funeral prayer yeah. or supplicate for her. But individual salvation is known to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That's what he should have said. Yeah. But by saying, if Rachel Curry is not going to paradise, then I am in the wrong religion. Mm. So when this individual rushes to those type of statements, his followers then 
jump on the bandwagon because at the time when I refuted him on the Qadianis, his followers went on the internet and posted if such and such scholar is saying this, it must be correct. Mm. That scholar then retracted. Mm. So he retracted, but where do his followers stand? Yeah. And additional to that, it also also shows us the harms of blind faith. Yeah. And blind conformity in yeah. belief. So these are some of the reasons why I believe uh, these people uh, accept the study Quran because they can't make a compatibility between coming from a disbelieving background, mm. but which is not something new to us. Yeah. When I say us, I mean <coughs> migrants, mm. because <coughs> people who migrated from the Indian subcontinent prior to partition, mm. there were many non-Muslims living in what is termed as being Pakistan today. Mm. And many of them were reverts, this term reverts, by the way, you discuss, yeah. you despise the word reverts. So, so yeah. many of them were new Muslims. Yeah in India and Pakistan yeah but they never had a crisis of salvation of their ancestors yeah but this seems to be a, ang uh, a crisis of faith mm. in the Anglosphere yeah where there is a, okay. a crisis of faith uh, yeah. issue uh, regarding salvation of ancestors and salvation of parents and salvation I had a neighbor here mm. Sheila an old woman yeah she was in the 90s mm. and she died yeah now Sheila yeah. was a Jehovah's Witness. Okay. Prior to that, she was a Catholic. Yeah. Then she became a Jehovah's Witness. Then she got to know me. Now Sheila was my neighbor, and she would preach to me every day, and mm. I would convey to her the message of Islam. But Sheila did not have uh, the ability to comprehend what is being said to her yeah. because of her old age. Mm. Now, when Sheila died. Mm regarding her individual salvation what will I say mm. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best yeah because Al-Imam Al-Hashimi rahimahullah uh, the Shaykh of uh, Shaykh Abdurrahman Al-Shaghuri mm. rahimahullah in his book Sharh uh, Nazmi Aqeedati Ahli Sunnah he places 10 conditions for the Mukallaf yeah yeah I have the book here somewhere he places uh, 10 conditions for the Mukallaf and some of them are like uh, the the mukallaf, meaning the person who is tasked to accept Islam, he must be discerning. Mm, yeah. Cannot be in a state of negligence. So now when we apply that on individuals, mm. our problem is resolved. That yeah. Allah knows best. Yeah. But as a general, we are told to say kuffar are going to hell. Yeah. And then you have the question of eternal punishment, which yeah. is not something new. Yeah. The question, because even Taymiyyah, ascribed to that view according to some scholars yeah even though some say he was free from that belief yeah. but uh, al-imam subki refuted him on that so i believe this study quran phenomenon yeah. as well as perennialism mm. some of this comes down to salvation i don't know what you have to okay. say uh, well, regarding that. all right let's go over everything you said there <laughs> long statement mashallah okay i think the, i think the first thing goes back to uh, i think i would start with something brilliant that imam ghazali said in Kitab al-Tawheed wa Tawakul from the Ihiyad al-Mudin whereas he said that innovation, he said how does innovation start? He said innovation always starts when 
someone, when you are studying the Quran or you're studying Islamic theology or fiqh or something, and you come across something that does not sit well with you, doesn't sit easy with you, and you find it difficult to reconcile to. And he said, at that point, you have two options. Either you study, you study, you study, you study until you understand it. That's option number one. Option number two, you innovate. <laughs> you just change it. And I, again, so this problem that people have with salvation, with, okay, are my parents not saved, my grandparents not saved, and so on and so forth. What, what, all these points that you've mentioned, obviously that, that's true. We don't talk about individuals. You know, you can't, the individual salvation. But again, we're not responsible for that. We're not responsible for that. We judge by the outward. This is this is why, for example, I, I find it really amazing that the Prophet would allow the companions to pray over Munafiqun. Like he knew who the Munafiqun were, but there were there were Munafiqun who were being prayed over. Um, it was until the abrogation came. Yeah. So Hudayf bin Yaman, like he knew who they were. There's a story of Hudayf bin Yaman. He was Sahab Sir. He knew who the Munafiqun were. So Omar Khattab would follow him around. Right? So he's like, it's, you know, is Hudayf going to the Janazah today? Oh, he's not going. Maybe that's because of. He knows this guy's secret, so we're not we're not responsible. So if so if we if we pray over someone, if we, if we pray over someone who outwardly is a Muslim but is inwardly a monafic, we're not to blame because we don't know. If someone dies as a Muslim but outwardly to the, us they were an unbeliever and we don't pray over them and bury them, that's not our fault because we're not to know. I I find it quite fascinating because I think it also leads into this issue because e- even with a term like kafir, like people get wary of that. They say, don't call him a kafir, call him a non-Muslim because you don't know. You don't know like how he's going to die. You don't know what's in his heart. I was like, well, I don't know what's in his heart. But outwardly, he's a kafir, and, and kafir is a, a theological designation. It's not an insult. It's not a, a derogatory term. It depends how you use it. It's like fire. You can use fire to destroy. You can use fire to make tea. It's not an inherently derogatory, harmful thing. So these people will say, don't say kafir. Say non-Muslim. But you know, I can say in response, okay, I'll call you a non-kafir. I don't know how you're going to end up. I don't know what's in your heart. So we're responsible for the outward. That's the thing that we have to understand. Secondly, when talking about Allah's justice, you see, this is another thing I find with, with the apprentice. And there was one of them. There was Martin Lings who had some issue with. You know, he he'd say something like, you know, why is it when the Muslim conquest, the Futuhat, why is it that they got to Spain and didn't go any further? Why did it go on to France and Germany and England, and and those people didn't. Uh, receive the message. You think, well, isn't Allah most just? Like we were just, you just mentioned these points now about Baluga Dawa, the message has to reach them. Allah is most just. Why are you so worried about. It seems to me they don't. They, they don't believe basic, it. Uh, basic kalam. Yeah, they don't understand Allah is most just. Like, why are you worried about. Oh, they didn't get the message. Will Allah treat them fairly? What do you. Like, what kind of. What kind of question is this? It doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't but Martin Lings was treated by. These uh, yeah people as a saint, meaning even though he was yeah, he these, yeah he had these funky ideas. But I think what people don't get, uh, and he was associated with uh, some of the earlier perennialists, uh, like Frithiop Shuan and yeah, and these Rene, people Rene into, yeah. they were into some uh, bizarre things, weren't they? Yeah. Meaning things that go beyond our uh, yeah discussion. Yeah, we'll have to sit down again for that. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, but one of the things I think people don't understand is inamal malabi niyat, right? That actions according to intentions. The first hadith in the Arabic Nawawiyah, it's like, obviously, because we're doing a translation of a, of a shot right now. 
and it's one of the pillars of the faith that that understanding that hadith. With regard to that, some of them, some people ask uh, a common question. They ask me is. Uh, Princess Diana was such a good person. She did so much for charity. Mother Teresa and being another one. Yeah. By the way, they died on the same day. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then you have Muslims who commit injustice and whatnot. So how I respond to that is by saying, uh, intention. If a Muslim yeah. does a good in act, yeah, with the wrong intention, yeah, the Muslim is not rewarded. Yeah. So if I give ten pound to a poor person mm. out of uh, ostentation. Mm. I will not be rewarded for giving that tempan. Yeah. So if a non-Muslim does a good action, um, firstly, who are they doing the action for? Yeah. And secondly, are they not rewarded on earth? So these these simple kind of objections have a simple response. Yeah. But for some reason, there's there's a many young people, mm. uh, and not only young people, these uh, intellectuals as well, mm. like Martin Lings and others. Yeah who seem troubled by these type of questions and they, they end up with a crisis of faith mm. where they end up innovating things into deen whether that's in uh, belief mm. or whether it's in practice so belief uh, in terms of perennialism or mm. believing Lahori Qadianis are believers or mm. so many other things but in fiqh mm. where they find uh, the fiqh too difficult to practice also and this is what's leading to a crisis of faith for many young people in the UK mm. and in the US and other places where they either will remain as Muslim but they will uh, innovate into the religion in mm. belief or practice and in some cases some of them leave the religion yeah because but to get to this point yeah what people don't get again because you're saying it's about intention it's about intention so uh, I think Mama Shara mentioned this in his tafsir as well he said you know you look at these people who have done beneficial things for humanity whether it's Princess Diana or a scientist who may who discovered some medicine or so on and so forth. But the question is, who do they do it for? Right? If they did it for people, people rewarded them. People g gave them a memorial holiday. People gave them a, a statue in the, in the park, whatever it was. They were rewarded. So what does Allah owe them? Uh, I think one example I've used sometimes when teaching people, you know, to give a simple example so that viewers have something to use. I mean, for example, if I... If you and I, let's say we're the same age, and we leave school, we leave university, and we start work, right? I work for company A, you work for company B. And every month we get our salary and we pay something into our pension. And that we just do that every month. We pay into our pension, we work for our salaries. We do that all the way through to retirement age, okay? So we're going to retire at the age of 65. In the last few months of work, uh, my company goes bust. My company goes bankrupt, my pension disappears, my retirement goes. Your company B, you finish, you get your retirement, you get your retirement payments, you get your pensions, you're set. You're set for life, I'm struggling. Can I therefore go to your company and say, give me a pension? Look, I worked all these years. I spent 40 years working in this company, I worked really hard. What are they going to say? Company B is going to say, you didn't work for us. Sorry. I understand. I understand you worked hard. I'm not denying that. It just wasn't for us. We don't owe you anything. It's it's really that simple. Did you read any of Guy Eaton's works? The King of the Castle. I think I read was it uh, Man and uh, so, so Islam and the Destiny of Man. Yeah, I think I read a bit of that. So, th if you read these t works and then uh, you read uh, some of Martin Ling's works, 
because these were like the pioneers for mm. some of the uh, new Muslim scholars and mm. new Muslims who are scholars in the West. Yeah, these guys were like the pioneers for them. Mm -hmm. So that mindset, meaning that way of thinking, mm. has trickled down, filtered down mm. into the mindset of some of the du'at, the callers that we have now in the West. Yeah, whether they realize it or not. Yeah, but. Um, that mindset has also trickled down from the du'at into the mindset of children of immigrants and yeah. uh, other Muslims living here. I mean, who won't have a, uh, they won't look back to scholars from Darul Islam. Yeah. Meaning, many of the younger people, meaning me and you are young, but yeah. we're relatively young because yeah. there's people younger than us in yeah. their 20s and teenagers. teenagers. Mm. They won't. Uh, relate to scholars like uh, the scholars that we've mentioned, meaning Imam Sha'rawi, who died in 96, I think. And he's 98. Yeah, 98 yeah. or 96. Yeah. Or Al Imam Muhammad Saeed. Uh -huh. uh, or uh, Sheikh Wahba Zuhaili. Yeah. Or Sheikh Nuruddin Aitr. Yeah. Or so, uh, so many other scholars, meaning the, the Muslim world has so many ulama who we would deem as being authoritative. Mm. But because they are unable to relate to them, they relate to du'at. Mm. Callers, who are, some of them are mutamakkineen in their knowledge, they have knowledge, mm. but the, the knowledge is not the problem. Yeah. Meaning knowledge is accessible. This is one of the ashratu sa'a in akhiru zaman. Yeah. Mm. Knowledge will be accessible. Yeah. The problem here relates more to ikhlas and spirituality, meaning the ruhani of Islam, the ruh of Islam. Mm. But how do we get to the the essence of the spirituality of Islam? I asked uh, Sayyid Abbas bin Alawi regarding this, and he said to me that the sir, mm. the secret is a sidq. Mm. A sidq, meaning sidq, truthfulness with yeah. Allah. Mm. So when there is an absence of sidq, mm. everything else is absent. And when a sidq is there, truthfulness with Allah, then a person is steered in the right direction. Yeah. So what do you think with the, the new generation, meaning irrelevant to whether you think Islam will remain in the Anglosphere or not, mm. the, in the long term? And I will go on to the subject of Imam al-Mahdi mm. after this, but the, uh, in the long term, what is the, the essence that is needed by people? Well, I think that's absolutely true to have sidq with Allah, to be sincere with Allah, because I I think that uh, I've, I've seen this in quite a few people recently. You talk to people. If you get into a situation where you're you're being pressured to do something that you know contradicts revelation, right? You know that. I can't do this because Allah has not commanded it or Allah has prohibited it, so I'm not supposed to do this. If you then go ahead and do it, it's going to, you're going to feel it inside you. It's affect gonna, you spiritually. It's going to affect you spiritually. You're going you're to feel, it's going to hurt you on the inside. Like, almost like physiologically, it's going to hurt you. And that is going to lead to... Uh, Spiritual elements. Yeah, it's, and it's going to lead to depression. It's going to lead to depression. So, spirituality is interlinked with guidance. Yeah, ex exactly. Hidayah. But eventually a person gets to a stage hmm. 
where they, where it no longer hurts the spirit yeah and a person accepts it and then they change the ruling or change yeah and make it something acceptable isn't that the case yeah well that could be that could be this didraj i mean that's just like <laughs> meaning imtihan from allah a test from allah yeah it's a test from allah because I, I i think i think if people are if you if you are in that sort, sort of state where you know you you can see maybe it's your culture that's contradicting your revelation and that's troubling you in your heart that's probably a good sign that you've got that in you that is troubling you and that therefore you need to act act according to that and fight but At if you don't you're going to be conclusion of our discussion i just want to mention uh, three things before finishing one is uh, al-imam abdullah sirajuddin rahimahullah ta'ala of halab in one of his books i think the work saudul uh, aqwal mm. he mentions a dua and I want to mention this dua for all our viewers and everyone else so they may benefit is a dua that protects you from fitna, tribulation because we live in a yamul fitan zamanul fitan, tribulations is Allahumma rabban nabiyyi Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam ighfir li dhambi wa avhib ghaitha qalbi wa ajirni min mudillatil fitani ma ahyaytani ya dhal jalali wal ikram this is from the Sunnah. He, he sources this from the mm. works of Hadith. That if someone recites this regularly, they will be protected from tri tribulations. And tribulations mm. are three types. One is in belief. Mm. The second is in uh, fiqh, mm -hmm. practice of fiqh. Mm. And the third would be, even if a person is not affected in the Iman and the fiqh, mm. meaning uh, bid'ah in religion, it would affect their worldly life. Yeah, meaning oh. you can have tribulation in anything in your worldly life. This is one point I wanted to mention. The second one uh, was regarding this book uh, over. The, can you just which one is it? This one. Yeah, that one. This one. Yeah. So this particular author he wrote on mm. purification of the heart. Yeah. So this is uh, purification of the heart, signs, symptoms, and cures of the spiritual diseases of the heart. Translation and commentary of Imam al Mawlud's Ma'faratul uh, Qulub by Hamza Yusuf. Yeah. So people are writing on the, yeah. the, the, the issues of spiritual elements. Of, yeah. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best of people's intentions. So we're not being judgmental yeah. regarding intentions, mm. but like you said, we judge on the Apparent oh. and yeah. that one. Husnul Khatima meaning a good ending. Yeah. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to give us a Husnul Khatima and give oh. these people also good Husnul Khatima in accordance with their intention and their sit with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. I just want to mention this book because it's on the yeah. elements of the heart. A third uh, book I wanted to show was this one, the third from your right. Yeah, that one. Because we have no time. Regarding the subject of Al-Imam Al-Mahdi, this book, Iqtud Durar Fi Akhbar Al-Muntadhar. Now, this is a Sunni book, even though the Shia have their own edition of the work. Okay. This is the Darul Minhaj edition. Have you seen this edition? No, I have not seen that, no. So you live in Jeddah currently. Darul Minhaj is based Yeah, yeah, I've been there many times. I haven't seen the copy. You've never seen this? No. So this is by Al-Imam Yusuf. بن يحيى بن محمد بن علي المقتسي السلمي الشافعي
passed away in the year 658. Okay. So it's a very early work. Now the reason why I'm mentioning this is you must have heard of my conversation with the uh, deviant uh, on the uh, descent of uh, Sayyiduna Isa salam in the end of times, uh, a local uh, mufti. Okay. Now he def- he right, uh, yeah. denied the descent of Isa salam and said all the hadith are forged. Yeah. Even though scholars have compiled so many hadith, uh, uh, Sheikh Abdullah Siddiq al Ghumari mm. alone compiles over 60 hadith. I, mean, uh, I have his work somewhere. Over 60 hadith and then from the commentaries of the Quran. And according to him, all the hadith are forgeries and they were forged by people uh, who were who had accepted Islam from Christianity. So they mm. were Christians, they accepted Islam and innovated the belief in the return of Jesus. Yeah. This was his theory. Now, this person, he doesn't ascribe to any legal theory or what we would call قواعد tafsir in nasus a method of understanding mm. uh, texts, or the mustalah al-hadith, yeah. the technical method of hadith verification and checking the authenticity of a hadith and its veracity and then interpreting it correctly. Initially he claimed to be Maliki, but then these people uh, evolve into creatures yeah. uh, that just have their own method. Yeah. I mean, what suits them, they will change. I mean, there's no fixed method. Mm-hmm. But likewise, uh, some people now, well, not only recently, in previous times as well, have said regarding the belief in Al-Imam Al-Mahdi. Yeah. Firstly, that the ahadith are forged, mm-hmm. number one. And number two, that it's an innovated belief uh, that was introduced after in the Abbasi period. Okay. So during the Abbasi rule, people were living under the uh, the climate of the Abbasi uh, rulers that uh, not all of them were bad people, meaning Harun Rashid was an exceptionally very good r- ruler. Mm. But because of this, they forged hadith mm. and they claimed that all the narrators are from Kufa and other types of claims. But this book, Iqt mm. al uh, he compiles in this work over 400 narrations. Okay, 400 hadith. So let's say, for argument's sake, 390 hadith. Are forged. Yeah. Ten hadith will be sahih. Yeah. From four hundred. Yeah. At least ten will be sahih, but that's not the case. You'll find that the the number of sahih hadith are so many. Mm. Exceed the odd ten or twenty yeah. hadith, four hundred hadith. So for our viewers, yeah, I think you because you're into translations as well. Yeah. <laughs> this is something to look into. Okay. Durar, mm. And maybe you can also place a modern uh, commentary on some of the the ahadith on the Ashrat Sa'a. Also a Sheikh uh, Abu Bakr, Mashur, okay. uh, who lives in Jeddah. Okay. He's from the Habaib. Yeah. He has very good works uh, like Al-Usasu Wal-Muntaliqat. Al-Usasu Wal-Muntaliqat. Inshallah, I'll show you the book. Uh, Later, inshallah. inshallah. These are the last few things I wanted to mention. Okay. Anything else you want to mention before we finish? Yeah, I think um, it's a final thing. I think obviously, um, in terms of uh, 
availability of the book, that it is available on Lulu.com, it's available on Amazon.com. We can put um, the links below. I also have a podcast from last year where I talk about the book as well, but I also talk about the reasons behind writing the book for viewers to look at that. I think also one thing we maybe we should finish on is also, I think a lot of people have noticed, I saw this today, people jump to the last chapter about uh, will Islam survive in the West. Um, and now what, what I'm putting forward here is I, I, I think that Muslims who, who want to really protect their faith and cling on to their faith and not have to compromise it, not have to water it down, uh, whether it's in creed or fiqh or anything else, they're going to have. They're going to have to be. Like, they're going to be out of the mainstream. They're not going to be part of these national organizations. They're not going to be um, working with mainstream institutions at all. They're going to be to the side, kind of out of sight, out of mind. If they don't make hijra, uh, the thing is with that, with Darul Islam as well. As we move to, uh, we are living in Akhirul Zaman, yeah. the end of times, and Ashratul Saa are visible. Mm. In Darul Islam, also the fitan increase. Yeah. So within Darul Islam, when the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam foretold nikah nikah rajuli rajula, yeah, a man will marry a man, meaning openly. It's not only referring to yeah. the Anglosphere; it's referring to Darul Islam, mm -hmm. meaning these signs will occur in the end of time. So we have rulers like Muhammad bin Salman, uh -huh. who have plans for. Even the place, uh, the the holy cities of Makkah and Mukarramah, meaning opening cinemas and changing the uh, uh -huh. the, the the scope of uh, Islam in 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 the Hijaz oh, we'll and see. other places. Meaning these masaib will increase. Even though I agree mm. that uh, the person's iman is mm. stronger yeah. and uh, preserved, but. Uh, this brings us to a, another subject, inshallah, for another time yeah. regarding Akhirul Zaman. Yeah. That is that we live now in the Akhirul Zaman, and this is something people need to realize. And uh, the Ahadith of Ashratul Sa'a, people need to read the Ahadith. Yeah. So even in something like Mishkatul Musabih, they need to read Kitabul Fitan. Yeah. Uh, and realize that the 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 Fitan will affect the iman of individuals. I mean, belief. So it's yeah. a time to preserve our iman, irrelevant to where we live, because globalization is everywhere. Yeah, you have people living in the villages; they will have smartphones, mm -hmm. and they will access everything that we will be able to access here in the West. Yeah, I mean, ideologically, them and some of the, uh, the scholars have said, "Antali dalamatu rabbataha." The one of the meanings of that is the change of the way people think. Yeah. Well, this is the inqilab l'umur. Yeah. Things, Things get inverted. Change. Get introverted. Yes. Yeah. So we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Inshallah, this book uh, I would recommend for people who are in da'wah and anyone who is thinking about accepting Islam, they should read this book, The Big Step, uh, How to Survive Islam in the Anglosphere. There are a few things that I do disagree with. But okay. not on a uh, disagree in a, in a minor way, which I will discuss with him off camera, inshallah. <laughs> <laughs> we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, inshallah, that uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, enable you to do uh, mm. additional work mm. 
and focus on additional work inshallah inshallah i mean Okay, so we will finish there, inshallah. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Alhamdulillah, alameen. Salatu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Sallallahu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh.